0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? I think right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. The connection between diet and cancer has been in some ways the holy grail of medicine. Elusive and yet tantalizing just to think that our diet can influence our risk for cancer and maybe even reverse it. I think many of you would be surprised to know that a lot of current data showing our diet can affect cancer is not new. In fact, in Nazi Germany, where they were exterminating Jews, gays, and other non-Aryans, cancer was on the rise. And German scientists, who were the leading researchers in the world at the time, were especially focused on the connection between diet and cancer. Even more fascinating, was Hitler's fear of cancer. Hitler's mother died in his teens from cancer and it forever changed him. Ironically, the scientist in Germany who was considered the world's leading cancer researcher at the time was Jewish and openly gay. His name was Dr. Otto Warburg. What a conundrum for Hitler. Does he rid Germany of this eminent scientist who he must personally abhor or does he allow him to pursue his research? Well, we're gonna find out when we discuss in today's podcast. My guest today is Doc, is Sam Apple. Sam is a science writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and his book, Ravenous, The Nazis, and the Search for the Cancer Diet Connection is what we will be discussing today. I read this book several months ago. I couldn't put it down, and I did a second swing through to, you know, the last few days to go prepare for the podcast. So I'm really excited to speak to the author himself, Mr. Sam Apple. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Okay. So you are on the faculty. uh, You're at the John Hopkins Science Writing Lab. I saw that on the... uh, on your bio I'm just curious I you know I I have like the writer in me too I've written a book you know not as popular as yours but I was wondering how you got interested in science writing you'll say versus fiction or biographies because as someone you know as a doctor I know science writing is not easy I mean you really besides obviously being a good writer you have to know the technicalities to make the subject veritable and yet at the same time digestible so anyway how'd you get into science writing
1: yeah, so it's a good question. I was originally a general nonfiction writer. I never thought of myself as a science writer. I was always interested in science, but I didn't take that many science classes uh, as an undergraduate, and um, never really thought I would go into science writing. But um, curious about my health, and um, you know, became particularly interested in, in part because my mother had MS, and uh, you know, I didn't know. I was told it wasn't genetic, but then I started to wonder as I became an adult well, you know, if it's not genetic, uh, are there environmental factors? So some of these were just, you know, natural personal questions. Um, But, um, you know, over the years, I became particularly interested in uh, nutrition, my metabolic health. I remember you know, a doctor telling me that I had high triglycerides and thinking, I, I really have no idea what that means or I've mm-hmm. seen that concern. So I just kind of let it go. Uh, but, but definitely a turning point for me was encountering the work of, of Gary Taubes, who is a, a well-known science journalist who writes about low-carb nutri- nutrition. Activity, That's
0: right. Mm-hmm.
1: Recently the uh, 20th anniversary of his uh, sort of famous article in the New York Times Magazine about, you know, challenging kind of the low-fat dogma and that really blew me away because it was so contrary to everything I had uh, learned and um, just raised a lot of questions for me and um, you know I'm not sure that at the early stages of my career I I was ready to be a science journalist but uh, as I grew into it I started to like it more and more in part because you know I I think I'm first and foremost a a storyteller and I feel science journalism you know there's always stories embedded. I don't have to go looking for the stories. There's right. you know, the scientists making the discovery. There's this yeah. story. I, this.
0: You know, it's so interesting you make that point. And I I think that, you know, I, I guess I, I'm sure you're teaching writers, but I've talked about this on another podcast. Honestly, doctors and even honestly, chemistry professors, you know, they made, you know, when I went to undergraduate at Brown, you know, the the undergraduate science courses were usually painful you know they were boring it was really kind of hard to get excited about it and when i look back i did have one or two really outstanding teachers but they typically would give you the history you know because again when you just study something you know just for our listeners like some biochemistry or chemistry when it's very isolated it's just boring stuff but the way you can make it come alive is to give the history and the and the story and, and as many scientists will say they stand on the shoulders of other previous scientists i mean you don't just come up with some theory out of the blue it's like you either have to dispel what was before you or you build on what came before you and but a really good story will do that and, and people say that frequently honestly about um uh Watson, I'm blanking on his first name. Um, James Watson. James Watson. Thank you. Right, like James Watson. Um, you know, again, his. I think it was the book, The Double Helix. Yeah. You know, and a lot. I think it was. I have it up here too. It was uh, Jennifer Dudna, who just got the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, talks about how that book was on her bed. Her dad gave it to her, and it just the uh, you know because Watson wrote in a very apparently exciting way about science, and that can get people excited. You know, the same way, you know, a good scientist really, again, makes it interesting, like a mystery, not just some boring stuff. Otherwise, who wants to do it? So Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even when, you know, Watson and Crick first made their discovery, it wasn't immediately a world-changing thing. It was right. Of, as the story, you know, people sort of understood the narrative more and how important it was, it, it really yeah made a sensation.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Let's get to the focus. I, I The way I really want to do this in two parts. I want to... There's such fascinating history in your book, Ravenous, and then we're going to get into, because I know a lot of the listeners want to know more about diet and cancer, but I want to set the background first for our listeners. Picture it's the 1930s, and Hitler is rising to power in Germany that has been beaten down from World War I reparations. I mean, the country was, their economy was in ruins due to hyperinflation. It was sort of the perfect storm for an autocrat to rise to power and put fear in people and find a scapegoat for all their problems. Kind of sounds a little familiar. Hitler also realizes he needs more natural resources to avoid food shortages in the future, hence invading other countries becomes foremost in his mind. But as the Nazis gained power in Germany, many uh, Jews, including some of the most eminent scientists in the world at that time, began fleeing Germany for other countries. And a lot of them came to the United States, fortunately. Um, so my question is, you know, historians and are fascinated by Hitler, unfortunately. It's like, a, how could somebody be that evil? How could somebody captivate a country? And in the book, you really capture a lot what he was like. So I was just curious, again, how did you find out this information about him. Actually, I can, a lot of things, I I never knew that he was so fearful about cancer. I didn't, you know, all these, these little things, was this from gleaning your research? I mean, was there any firsthand accounts of anybody that knew him personally? Just curious.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I never, you know, there is sort of a a small Hitler biography sort of embedded within the book, and I never planned to write that, but I was, you know, of course, interested in, in the Nazis and cancer and if you're interested in that question, you have to look at what Hitler thought about cancer. And I, and I was really struck by uh, the story of Hitler uh, and, and his mother, Clara Hitler. Um, you know, she's dying of breast cancer and he's a, a teenager. I think she's first diagnosed when he was about 16, or 17. And um, he eventually goes away has you know, his failures at becoming an artist in Vienna, comes back home. And um, his mother's dying, and she's being treated by a Jewish doctor, you know, of all things. And that
0: I thought was fascinating. Like as you yeah. said, I think the doctor made house calls every day for like forty-two days. You yeah. Know? So you, you know. Yeah.
1: no, he was an incredible doctor, and and Hitler liked him, and they, you know they were side by side every day for months, and uh, Hitler encouraged him, you know, to to try, you know, to do anything he could. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, Hitler later actually allowed him to in 1938 to escape Austria, and uh, you know, essentially, you know, personally protected him. Uh, so I don't think he blamed the. You know, some people have hypothesized that maybe he blamed this Jewish doctor for his mother's death, and that's why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that was the case. But um, what's really striking is, you know, the doctor later published an account of Hitler, and. Um,
0: Oh, the doctor did. He, he, yeah. he, interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. And he, he said in his, his entire life, he had never encountered somebody more, I think the word he used in, in translation was forlorn, more more depressed than he than mm. was by his mother's side. When he came in the morning when his mother died, he was sitting by his mother's bedside. Um, and he carried a picture with her of her for the rest of his life. But, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, historians have looked at this and talked about it. That it's probably the only person who's ever capable of loving you know, there was a human in there somewhere, but, you know, he would, you know, essentially have these transformations from, you know, Hitler, the human to to Hitler, the, you know, the monster, if you will. Um, and, and so it was clearly a very fundamental part of his psyche. And then for the rest of his life, you know, he worried about other diseases. He was a hypochondriac more more generally, but he was always focused on cancer first and foremost. And many of the other Nazis were as, as, as well, but, but Hitler, to a strange extent, you know, he had a up in, a, in his throat at one point, and that set him off. Uh, but um, he was always talking about it and always, you know, asking about, you know, what's the latest research? Uh, so a lot of it was quackery, but he was also, of course, interested in, in the actual science as well, to the extent that he thought it could help. So I, I was really fascinated by that angle.
0: Yeah, it is kind of fascinating when you think about, too, this person who presents this cold-blooded, um, you know, like you think doesn't have a heart, is obviously, you know, incredibly insecure and uh, and frightened, you know, of his own mortality as as he was busy taking millions of people's mortality. Right. Um, you know, the thing you bring up in the book with what was very interesting was right. that uh, there was data from Germany and it was actually coming from the most strangest place. It wasn't from medical researchers. It was from a, a actually an insurance actuary, <laughs> Frederick Hoffman, who was showing data that cancer rates were rising, I guess, after the turn of the century, you know, and obviously in Germany and other modern societies. Um so was this also becoming like a big like as you were saying a big concern for the Third Reich and, you know, that that cancer was on the rise that they had to do something
1: yeah yeah it really started in the in the second half of the 19th century and in, in a way i i think that that is is the true story of the book you know i i tried to weave various stories mm. it, but the true story the deeper story really is why cancer started to rise how it continued to rise and did we miss something? And, and
0: maybe we'll get to, to that. Yes, bit. yeah, that, Yeah. You, you are leading me into that. So, yeah, yeah so that, that that was interesting. I think that the listeners should be aware of that. So let's get back to Otto Warburg, OK, okay? Uh, on a, a couple of different angles um why was he different you know why when all of these jewish scientists because again i think he was half jewish but he knew he was in danger and he was also a uh, gay and that also put him in another openly gay and that was also another huge risk to you know to the um to the nazis why do you think um he stayed in germany i, I know you explained a little bit of the book but i'd like to hear yeah. your take on it and yeah and also just your perception also he was seeing a lot of horrors around him. he saw colleagues losing their positions at universities obviously some of them could be getting killed why why was was he in his own um vacuum what in his own world or is he thought he was above it what what was your take why he stayed
1: yeah i I thought about that question a lot as i was writing and i think a a few different things contributed to it but I think the most fundamental issue was, was his ego. Uh, you know, as I talk a lot about in the book, he was just an extraordinarily arrogant human being. Uh, mm. You know, A lot of it was justified in fairness because he, he was a genius, but uh, even so, you know, you know, one scientist said on a scale of one to 10 of uh, arrogance, Warburg rated a 20, you know, <laughs> people saw him, but um, you know, this is, really interesting to me. I didn't understand this until I started to dig in a little more, but when the Jews were fleeing Germany, you know, a lot of scientists in the early 30s, it was considered a humiliating thing. You know, now we look back at it and think, oh, what foresight, what wisdom, what bravery. But at the time, it was like acknowledging your second-class citizenship, like, uh, you know, we're not worthy and we're leaving away. So Fritz Haber, um, you know, was devastated, humiliated when he left, died shortly thereafter. And, Warburg, you know, in that understanding, in that context, it would have been impossible for Warburg to, you know, he could not accept any kind of humiliation, any kind of, yeah. You know, uh, embarrassment. And, uh, you know, in in addition to that, just a couple of years earlier, you know, 1931, he wins the Nobel Prize. Right. Rockefeller Institute, you know, gives him this extraordinary institute. So he's he's in the best position of really any scientist in the world. He has everything he wants, a team of technicians that do all of his experiments. So, you know, it was it was a hard thing to about.
0: Yeah, you know what when I read into it also, it's also he had this incredible pedigree. I mean, his dad won the Nobel Prize in physics. Uh the family was friends with other Nobel Prize winners, Emil Fischer, the the a world-renowned chemist. I mean, Einstein, you know, was a, again a family friend. Um so yeah, I I got the sense that this was a person that very comfortable in what he had achieved. And, um, you know, again, it's very hard to, you know, I've known over the years, you know, doctors that have fleed uh, fleed, uh, countries where there was issues, whether it was South Africa or South America. It's very difficult to pick up and leave the language, the country where you've grown up with. And, you know, it is, it's very, very hard. I mean, but obviously, you know, for so many of, uh, you know, the Jews, there was no, uh, there was no decision. It was life or death. Um, So...
1: Warburg once said that, you know, for another scientist, it was possible because you can get a lab anywhere. But he said for a king, you can't just find a new kingdom.
0: Yes, right. That, that sums it up, I guess. Yeah. Right.
1: And, and Einstein had a great quote, too. He said, you know, some people couldn't leave Germany because, you know, the German Jews had loved and supported Germany and fought in World War One. He said to leave in 1933, you had to admit you were wrong about Germany warburg couldn't admit he was wrong about
0: anything yeah i mean it's pretty amazing too einstein had already won a nobel prize and i think he lost his position i mean see that that i think that for our listeners that brings out the huge thing is that and we're going to get into this warburg doing his cancer research was again so important to hitler i mean whereas einstein again with his amazing you know brilliance you know, probably they they didn't see the the importance of, of physics, you know, and his theories of relativity to their immediate benefit. So I, I believe he lost his position at the university where he was teaching, and Warburg just went on, you know, with his institute untouched. Yeah, is, is uh, that right?
1: yeah? I mean, Einstein sort of separated himself before the Germans had a chance. You know, they sort of kicked him out after he had already announced that he didn't want any part of it
0: oh is that right he mm-hmm. really
1: came away thinking of einstein not only of course a genius but also kind of a political genius like he, he saw what was coming well before everybody else yeah mm. just a human being yeah what did if you
0: could explain the best that you can uh, for our listeners what did actually warburg win the nobel prize in medicine and physiology for because it didn't have to do with cancer it was yeah. with um...
1: I mean, it was- peripherally you know related to his cancer research but it wasn't actually you know the cancer research you know he won really for for figuring out or making a a critical discovery in terms of understanding how a cell breathes you know once we take in oxygen we take in glucose you know they have to burn you know not unlike a fire burns uh they have to react and, and nobody knew exactly you know they were starting to to figure out the steps how the glucose is broken down how it's reaches oxygen and you know enzyme, the study of enzymes was entirely new you know at very you know by by today's standards very uh, primitive technology uh, so warburg sort of unraveled this final step of the process uh, you know how the, the molecules that we eat uh, are broken down and, and react with oxygen at one specific enzyme and that sort of put the respiration story together um in, in the introduction to his Nobel Prize speech, I like how, how it was put, they said, you know, if you put a piece of bread uh, on the counter, it, uh, it doesn't go up in flames, it doesn't burn, but when we eat it, even though our bodies are not, you know, extremely hot, it ultimately does burn, and so you know, we had to understand how enzymes mm. happen, and Warburg used a lot of really really an indirect methods to figure it out because he couldn't, you know, use the tools that we have today, which would have just, you know, made it visible. An right.
0: Can you also explain, because again, they, this sequential leads to what, you know, the whole idea with his influence in his work on cancer, what the Warburg effect was.
1: Sure. Sure. So, um, you know, the Warburg effect, you know, that's, you know, The reason I wrote about Warburg ultimately is because of this discovery that he makes in the early 20s, where he sees that uh, cancer cells are taking up a lot of glucose, you know, much more than normal cells. And instead of burning it with oxygen in the mitochondria, you know, that's respiration. That's the reason we breathe, cellular respiration. Instead, they were using, you know, what I use the analogy of of a backup generator, they were fermenting the glucose instead of burning it with oxygen. Just uh, doing the same thing that microorganisms do, yeast and so on. Just you know, splitting the glucose apart, and you know, basically taking it out of the cell in the form of lactic acid. You know, some microorganisms do that. Uh, that's how we get yogurt. Other ones use a very similar process, and we get alcohol, and so we get beer and bread and wine. I mean, and, and and wine and so many other foods. So it was understood by the 1920s that that a cell could do this. Warburg wasn't the first to discover that human cells also could ferment. Um, but it was thought to be that something a cell only would do in desperation. And what Warburg saw is that cancer cells, they had access to oxygen, and yet they still seemed to prefer this fermentation method, taking up a lot of glucose and and uh, breaking it down and turning it into lactic acid. So that became known as the Warburg effect, uh, whereas, you know, Instead of doing it out of desperation, you can think of it uh, you know, in terms of when somebody exercises; they do intense sprinting, and their lungs can't keep up. We produce lactic acid as part of the process that makes our muscles sore. That's a case where we need to turn to fermentation to keep up with the energy right. But Warburg thought, you know, cancer cells weren't under that kind of stress, and they were still doing it. So that was the mystery: why are cancer cells doing this? What causes them to do it? Uh, because Warburg thought. This is the most fundamental step in cancer. This metabolic shift, and if we could figure this out, we could figure cancer out.
0: Did he ever really come close to figuring it out? Like, what what, what was his theory on cancer? I'm not. Uh... Yeah.
1: Well, well, he he certainly thought he did. You know, not long after he made the discovery, he proposed a hypothesis to explain it, and he stuck by that his whole life. You know, nice. before he couldn't admit he was wrong about anything, and I think that's what ultimately tripped him up. You know, he I think he made the right discovery. I mean, he made a huge discovery. He simultaneously recognized that that discovery is very fundamental and important, but I don't think he was necessarily right about why it happens. And, you know, unfortunately that got him involved in all sorts of controversy. So his hypothesis in the end, you know, sort of developed it over time. And his basic hypothesis is that um, if there's oxygen there and the, it's not being used to produce energy, then there must be some kind of defect, you know, something is, poisoning the mitochondria poisoning Mm. the cell and forcing it to you know to turn to fermentation like turning on the backup generator because there's some kind of problem you know clearly there's oxygen but if a cell could use oxygen it would so something's going wrong and he ultimately concluded that it was environmental causes. And, you know, he was particularly concerned about chemicals in the environment.
0: Right. Right. I know you mentioned but, that. Yeah. You, know. but
1: they, you basically poison the cell and and force it to turn to fermentation. And that pushes us towards cancer. I, I came away thinking, you know, that may be the case for some cancers. I came away thinking that that's not the deeper story that Warburg was largely wrong about that. And um, it, it gets really messy because it, it is, true that as cancer progresses they have a harder time getting oxygen you know the blood vessel supply is narrowed et cetera, and they do ferment more to make up for that so he was he was very close but I, I think the deeper origin of the story is diet but but not in the way he thought he thought it was diet poisoning a cell so with chemicals i came to the conclusion probably Oh, should I, should
0: I wait to get to that? No, it's okay. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I wanted to get to his perspective on diet before we get to a little bit more modern stuff because um, he was concerned, as you mentioned, about all the artificial ingredients in foods, even in the 30s or 40s. God knows compared to today, he would he would pass out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he was concerned about that. I believe you mentioned in the book I don't remember if he followed a specific diet. I don't think he was vegetarian, but he was very particular about like even I think where his milk came from or any of his products, as much homegrown as possible. Um I mean, what was his theory a little bit on diet? Did he have, a, I don't recall, there was, you know, I mean, today we have so many things, paleo, keto, vegetarian, and, you know, I don't, did he have like a, Uh, you know, uh, for his own personal view, what did he, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I would call it sort of an extreme organic diet, you know, Mm -hmm. he was really at the forefront of the organic diet movement. Uh, You know, he um, is probably most known in America through the book, uh, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, who, uh, you know, talks so much about the environmental carcinogens. And she actually, you know, when she talks about cancer, Warburg is the first scientist she cites and, um, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about that, but that that had a big influence. So that's the realm that he's in. He's very interested in chemicals and, you know, and that's still a big story, but even more so in the fifties and sixties and seventies, that was becoming a bigger and bigger story environmental poisons. So that that's what he really was interested in. So it wasn't about meat or protein or carbs. It was about contamination. And, um, you know, he, that was, you know, that also shows his German influence. You know, that's what I talk about in the book, too, that, you know, throughout the 20th century, uh, you know, the Germans had had this obsession with, you know, impurities. And that was part of the Nazi ideology, mm. but beyond Nazi ideology, uh, to thinking about contamination and, and all sorts. And, you know, what makes it so complicated is, despite the overlaps with some of the Nazi ideology, I mean, there are genuine concerns about chemicals and food. You know, not everything no is wrong just because it's has a, uh, you know, disturbing parallel to, to some ideology. Um, right. So, um, you know, I I think he deserves credit in some respects for, you know, drawing more attention to these issues and he would, you know, write letters to the government and newspapers about smog and air pollution and, um, things of that nature. Uh, and, you know, this poor partner, uh, Jakob Heiss, had to, like, make all this food from scratch.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, there was the horse and the boss. He was the boss. The other guy was the horse. The yeah. horse.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, um, so so that was that was his worldview. And, um, you know... It was I,
0: interesting, too. Like, also, you mentioned... I, I found it interesting, all even these little details. Like, Wherever he had his institute, he always had like some kind of view of a garden. I guess he was very interested in nature. And I guess, you know, like a lot of holistic people feel like getting back to nature in some ways, you know, gets you away from this sterile, artificial environment that's probably not good for our health. So I I thought that was kind of interesting as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he was... You know, an aristocrat. You know, he, yes. he liked mm-hmm. fancy things. He had oh yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a gorgeous institute that was modeled after an 18th century country manor. Would mm-hmm. like to you know look out at at the garden. I think that ultimately played into his views of cancer. He he saw respiration with oxygen as being above fermentation. Fermentation, like coming in, in his view earlier in evolution and being the lower microorganisms and evolved animals having respiration. So. In in his sort of hierarchical world view, you know, fermentation was bad, respiration was good, and cancer had to be caused by the bad things.
0: Interesting. Okay, let's make a transition to modern science on cancer. And there are obviously a lot of important things. You know, when when I look at the overview, we'll talk about this genetics, this immunology, and... Then full circle back to metabolism. Now, up to the 1950s, it was interesting. You know, chemists and biochemists were considered the leaders in cancer research. It was very prestigious to be a chemist. Um, then in 1953, Watson and Crick discovered the structure of the double helix of DNA. And as you mentioned, it, you know, a lot wasn't done right then. But I think a lot of people saw the potential there that, you know, again, of what it potentially could happen and it opened up the whole field of genetics and and actually obviously the search, you know, for genetic links to cancer. And as you mentioned, in the 1970s, the first oncogene was discovered by, uh, doctors, Michael Bishop, J. Michael Bishop and Harold Varmus. Harold Varmus went on to be the NIH director. Um, and then, so this became the focus for while well, cancer, uh, You know genes causing cancer became the focus uh, and the metabolic origins of cancer kind of fell by the wayside now even more recently which all of us can see on television all the time immunology is now starting to dominate the whole field of oncology like dr allison's work james allison's work in texas you know on t-cells and cart therapy you know let's use the immune system they're the pac-man to figure out how to kill these cancer cells so again now it's like going, we we went from the DNA and the genetic mutations to now our surveillance system, maybe that can take care of it. And then you mentioned in the book, because that's what we're going to focus on, that in around 2010, there was sort of this revival of Warburg's work on metabolic theory of cancer. Um, So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Craig Thompson's work at University of Pennsylvania, about why he got interested again in you know, they start to think like, wait, maybe we better go back to this Warburg's guy stuff, you know, about cancer and, you know, and glucose and diet and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, in the post-war period, Warburg's work just completely disappeared. You know, it's really amazing how quickly it fell out of favor within uh, the cancer world, you know, by by the 1970s, you know, people just aren't interested Um partially because Warburg made such extreme claims and partially mm-hmm. science paradigms, that you mentioned it, just sort of naturally shift. And partially because Warburg's hypothesis wasn't well supported by by some of the studies that that tried to reproduce his effect. He, he never
0: up. did any clinical trials, though, right? I mean, again, I, he was a doctor, even though yeah. he was, I mean, I know he went he to medical school. Experiment. It was all labs, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, I mean, I, I should clarify that his, his fundamental finding that cancer cells turned to fermentation held up very well. What didn't hold up is Warburg said that, you know, that the, the use of oxygen was going down, and other studies said, well, these cancer cells are still using oxygen, so it doesn't have to be this either-or thing. But in, in any case, you know, in the 1970s, as you mentioned, you know, they start to find oncogenes, and, and that takes over. And, you know, I heard stories literally of, like, these Warburg respiration devices being thrown into the garbage and the posters coming off the wall, you know, just a very dramatic paradigm shift. And, uh, you know, so these new scientists like Craig Thompson was at the forefront of this, you know, they're getting their degrees and all the excitement is around genetics and figuring out which mutations cause cancer. Um, You know, they called Warburg's enzymes, housekeeping enzymes, you know, they, they understood, you know, cell some level needs nutrients are right kind of i just it seemed to be peripheral to the real story and you know, the real story the cool stuff is craig thompson said with the genetics so you know they're they're trying to understand how a gene controls you know a, a cell's ability to sort of escape the you know the regulation of the body and keep making copies of itself and basically you know tracing the mutation to what protein signals it sends these pathways through the cell and as they're tracing them you know, they start finding that it turns out that the many of the key mutations that are associated with cancer actually control metabolism. So it was kind of this mm. circular path back to Warburg, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, now, you know, a way to, to think about it is that, you know, oncogenes are a real important thing, but, you know, the same oncogenes that, that changed our understanding of cancer also are, you know, the key sort of pieces that control metabolism. And, and so Craig Thompson specifically focused on an enzyme named uh, called AKT, and some people have referred to it as the Warburg enzyme, because when it's mutated, when it's sort of flipped on, it's in hyperactive mode. What it does is it starts pulling more and more glucose into the cell, and you know then as that glucose floods in, the cell turns to, to fermentation to sort of manage this, and it starts to, to switch on, you know, this sort of this cancer metabolism. Um, so so that was, you know, sort of the marriage of these two different worlds. Another very important scientist at the forefront of this was Chi Van Dang, who was uh, working on a um, transcription factor, one of these genes uh, that turns on many other genes and sort of has a huge impact on the cell. And it was called uh, MIC. And, and sure enough, that like, played a fundamental role in in turning on fermentation as well. So it, it all sort of came together and there was this excitement or revival about, you know, metabolism and could we starve a, a cancer cell uh, by targeting one of these mutations, depriving it of the nutrients that it needs. And um, that is ongoing research. It's, I think it's pretty exciting, but it's like with, with everything in cancer, you know, there's a lot of excitement and then, you know, it doesn't always pan out and uh, takes time. So what I think is that the real excitement about metabolism is the prevention story, what it tells us about cancer prevention. And what worries me is, I, you know, I'm excited about the immunos, the immunometabolism research and all sorts of stuff. But I feel like some ways we might be re- repeating the mistakes of the past, moving on to the next thing while missing this sort of fundamental lesson about prevention. And, and I think Warburg was right that metabolism is at the core of cancer and that if we think about that in the context of prevention. It has huge implications for
0: right you know, Yeah, you make me think about something as we're talking now. It's very interesting that you know metabolism and diet, and we're gonna get to the, my next question on something important with this, is how you get it early. The immunology to me now makes sense is like the, you know, like the last stab at getting the immune system back, you know, in regulation. Because once I mean I, I would think at one point, I mean whatever your diet is, if you have stage three or four cancer, that's not gonna do it. I mean, I have someone eating well now and, you know, whatever, even even a restricted or fasting diet, we'll get into that too, how that can help. It might be too late. I mean the cells have been dysregulated, they're yeah. metastasizing. You might need your super Surveillance system, the immune system to go in and clean up if it's possible, yeah. but but if you could avoid getting to that stage by dealing with the underlying metabolism issue, um, again going back to the data that showed that obviously and again it's sometimes it's always hard to know where we seeing higher cancer statistics because they were diagnosing cancer better compared to who knows the 1700s or 1800s, or was it truly increasing? you know, because of modern society, diet, chemicals, additives, et cetera, you know, environmental toxins. Um, I want to ask you also, you mentioned about the the researcher Lewis Cantley, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: who made the connection between insulin levels. I thought this was really fascinating in cancer. And he championed, as you mentioned in the book, I want to try to keep this as simple as I can for the listeners that, but that insulin stimulated something called the, the P, is it I3K pathway?
1: Yeah, PI3K. Yeah.
0: yeah, pathway that actually causes increased nutrients in the cells. And you pointed out uh, in the book from the research that tumors actually have increased number of insulin receptors on them. Well, why was this important? Um,
1: yeah, yeah. So this, you know, this really is the end of the book. You know, the beginning of the book is cancer is increasing. The end of the book is, is Cantley's research. He He probably influenced me more than... Almost any other cancer scientist, and you know, and this goes back to what you were just talking about: was cancer really on the increase? Uh, was it just more diagnosis? People living longer lives. So I devoted a whole chapter to that because, in a way, my you know, if you don't you know, it's controversial, but if you don't buy that it was truly increasing, then it undermines a lot of the arguments of my book. So I, I think the evidence is very strong that it's increasing, and that it does you,
0: seem to be the case. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I
1: mean, you don't even have to look at the early stuff because right, you see like these migration, you know, these migratory populations where they go from one country to another. Yes,
0: right, right. Of course, you know, when the Japanese, you know, they come to the United States, all of a sudden their heart disease and cancer rates start going up Yeah, tremendously. Yeah. That, doesn't,
1: yeah. that doesn't prove it's any one element of the diet, but it's something about the way.
0: Something's going on, yeah.
1: And I don't even think that's controversial. You know, what's controversial is some people put the estimate as, as low as 40%. Some people put it as high as 90% in terms of the environmental causes of cancer, uh, clearly, some are genetic. Clearly, some are bad luck. But clearly, I think a very large part of it is something in our environment. Anyway, so um, my hypothesis or, or the one that I explore, which, you know, again, it, it is controversial, is that um, cancer was quite rare. You know, not I shouldn't say rare. It's always been around. But compared to today, it was quite right. rare. Um Prior to the uh, 18th century, really, and then you see in in the 19th century, becomes more and more common, and um, you know then vastly more common in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century, and and so the mystery is you know what's going on, what's causing this, and and my hypothesis is that um, you know the key to it is that the metabolic dysfunction, uh, what this condition, which we now Sometimes called met- metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, uh, w- was developing around that time as we transitioned to diets that were high in sugar and refined carbs. And what that would do, uh, among other things, is is give your body more insulin, uh, more of this hormone, which can function very much like a growth factor. Um, you know, giving your cells the message to take up more glucose, just as you know would happen in the Warburg effect. And so Cantley, you know, looked at all this through the lens of modern science and was able to show that um, you know, that, that cancer cells are covered in, in uh insulin receptors, as you pointed out, and that um this pathway that he discovered, PI3K, turns out to be the most mutated, uh most commonly mutated pathway in cancer. Uh, so there's tons of evidence that cells are cancer cells are responsive to insulin. They use that to sort of flip on the Warburg effect and have a growth advantage over other cells. So just to kind of summarize all, all of this, the sort of one of the leading hypothesis, uh, uh, hypotheses is that, um, you know, these mutations might crop up all the time, uh, microscopic tumors that are wiped out by the immune system. Uh, but if, you know, this crops up, and you have an ability to take up a little more insulin in a body that is flowing with extra insulin, those cells will have a little bit of an advantage. They'll be less likely to go through this process of cell suicide. It's sort of like a survival signal. And uh, as they continue to grow, that, that insulin, you know, gives them an advantage. So, um, you know, that, that's what sort of Cantley brought me to. And, and I think that explains both the Warburg, why the Warburg effect happens or or links to the Warburg effect and also explains why cancer became more common because we all started to have this metabolic dysfunction. You know, I mentioned early in this interview that I had high triglycerides what I didn't know at the time is that that's actually a sign of insulin resistance. I had it myself. A lot of people think it's just obesity, but.
0: No, it's right. It's, it's also driven by people don't realize, because it's also from like, just for example, drinking alcohol, but any simple carbohydrate actually, you know, um, pushes up your triglycerides, you know, people think, you know, fat makes you fat or fat makes you have high triglycerides or cholesterol, but sugar even more so. So, and I think that, I think one of the takeaways, which we'll get back to later on is that unfortunately sugar is in a sense, I hate to use the word, but it's like the enemy. I mean, because the consumption has gone up so much, you know, even Linus Pauling, who I loved his work. I mean, he was a Nobel prize winner in physics but he ended up later on in his life turning a lot to functional medicine and he was really beaten up for that. Like where do you like the guy the guy was really the you know, the original biochemist. I mean, if anybody knew all the pathways in the body, he knew them. And he's you know, uh, you know, he wrote a lot about vitamins and stuff like that too, which again he was ridiculed for. But one of the things I remember in his books was that sugar consumption is a huge problem. And uh, you know, and I think a lot of things in your book kind of you know, bore that out. You know, I find what is also very interesting too. You mentioned I'd heard about it before, but in the 1990s, there was a remote village in Ecuador that re, you know, researchers found a community of uh, dwarfs who seemed to be immune to cancer despite a poor diet and lifestyle, and it was called Larone syndrome. I'm not sure if it was maybe named after the researcher. Could you tell us a little bit about that or the population?
1: Yeah, yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't looked at that information in a while. You read the book okay. more recently than I have, but okay. uh, you know, basically. <laughs> you know there, there's two key hormones there's insulin and a very closely related hormone igf1 and they, they mm-hmm. sort of work together in response to our diets to to manage growth and igf1 you know works with growth hormones so if you have a, a damaged igf1 receptor then um you're not going to be able to to grow very tall that's why they're dwarfs right um, and um you know, what, what's surprising is that, you know, without this ability, they also seem to be, you know, I don't know, totally immune, but largely immune to cancer. Uh, so it just shows that, um, you know, how fundamental insulin and insulin-like growth factor are to cancer. Um, you know, it's just one one piece of many pieces of evidence, but it's so interesting to me that you know this is, I feel like it's, it's kind of staring us all in the face that, um, you know, we have all this epidemiological data showing higher insulin, more cancer, uh, linking diabetes to cancer, linking elevated glucose to cancer, and yet, despite all that, it remains controversial to, to say that you know, sugar is, is somehow linked to cancer. But you don't have to make much of a leap, all you have to do is. See, you know, the clear science linking sugar and refined carbs to, you know, poor metabolic health and higher insulin, and then from there, the higher insulin, the cancer. uh You know, it's still we still need more research, uh but you know, some of the stuff is really striking. When you you know, when you're just growing cancer cells in, in a lab dish and petri dish, you actually for many cancers you actually need the insulin to even grow them. You know, if you wean them off insulin, they they start to die. Not for all cancers. But for for some, and and not every cancer, of course, relies on this insulin pi 3 k pathway. And, you know, I I don't want to say this is everything, but um, it's such a a fundamental part that I think it is overlooked. And and that's what's surprising to me because, you know, one scientist, uh, Michael uh, Pollack, who's one of the uh, leading cancer scientists in Canada who focuses on insulin and sugar as well, and I said to him, you know, why is it so controversial? We, you know, we talk about sex hormones and cancer and estrogen and mm-hmm. that's not controversial. And, you know, this is also a hormonal cancer story right. that, you know, he, he's mystified by it as well, I think. But anytime diet comes into the, con- the conversation, it immediately becomes controversial because there's so such a long history of quackery and, and diet stuff. And I, I get that. But, you know we have to be able to see both at the same time. We have to be able to see that, yes, there's a lot of diet related nonsense and yes, like diet is clearly fundamentally related to to many types. And, and it happens to be the most common and deadly types of cancer. You know, all the ones that have been linked to obesity. Um, you know, the, the, the link is often said that obesity causes cancer. I actually think that's misleading. I think it's the underlying insulin that's driving both obesity and cancer simultaneously. And, you know, there are some striking parallels between how the adipose tissue sort of takes up nutrients and and hogs them in the way that cancer cells do.
0: You know, what I find, though, a little bit confusing is that I I think most of the listeners know there's a difference between type one diabetes, which we call insulin dependent. These are patients that, you know, for some reason, the pancreas did not produce enough insulin, so they need supplementation you know, through injections, pumps, et cetera. And then we have the type two diabetes, which again probably goes a little more with your insulin resistance. They have actually too much insulin, but it's not working, you know, the whatever the receptors on the cells, you know, uh, and those patients tend to gain weight and get other medical issues. But I think from what you're saying and some of the data, it seems like it's mostly the type two diabetes who have a lot of this insulin floating around would be more, Prone to getting cancers versus, I think patients who have been, you know, type one diabetics, do they have an increased risk of cancer? Because essentially they have less insulin, but they're being supplemented. Is it? Do you? Are you aware of yeah, anything with yeah,
1: that? Yeah, yeah, no. I I'm only talking about type two. And I, I
0: it's only type two. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I mean, I the last thing I would want is you know to get the message that you know right right like, type one diabetics need insulin to survive. Everybody needs insulin to survive. Right, right. Uh, the, the concern is only when you have, you know, this condition of hyperinsulinemia, when you have much more insulin than you normally would under metabolic health. And and in the last stages of type two diabetes, it truly can resemble type one, you know, sort of the pancreas sort of Mm -hmm. burned out and you end up actually really needing, you know, the insulin or or other treatments. But um, in the first stages of diabetes, they're almost opposite conditions. You know, one case, you can't make insulin. The other case, you have too much insulin. Your cells Mm -hmm. aren't responding to it. And that's, you know, that's caused so much confusion. And I think the deeper story is, you know, what we call diabetes is really the last stage of diabetes, but the the deeper story is really, we, so many of us, most of us, the vast majority of American adults who aren't diagnosed with diabetes, actually have already the first stages of diabetes, the first stages of insulin resistance. Yeah. I, I don't know if I still do. I certainly did at one point, uh, Michael Shulman, uh, sorry, Gerald Shulman at Yale was a leading, uh, insulin uh, researcher and um yeah you know, he, he he does a lot of his tests on yale undergraduates he said most of them already come in with insulin resistance you know it's by one measure 88 percent of american adults have some degree of insulin resistance so uh if if this really is you know a key risk factor for cancer then then it's really all of us which could explain why cancer is so you Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, one last area I want to just talk about before we kind of wrap up. Do you, you, you talk about the dangers of sugar and the fructose versus the glucose story? And you call fructose the, the evil twin or doppelganger. I, I learned a little more definition of doppelganger. I thought it was just a look alike, but actually apparently you you informed me that it actually means the evil twin. So when you see somebody that looks like you, you know, <laughs> be careful calling them a doppelganger. Um, what would you say are the main points to understand about the fructose versus the glucose? I mean, obviously fructose is in fruit glucose is in any, it's a part of, you know, when carbohydrates are broken down, right? So
1: yeah, what, yeah. what should
0: we know about this?
1: Yeah, I, I think sugar is the number one concern. When I say sugar, it's very confusing because we have all these different terms. Right. I mean, sucrose, I mean, the, the sweet white stuff. I don't mean glucose, which is also sometimes referred to as sugar, you know, our blood sugar, Right. all like blood sugar, but it's actually, you know, glucose. What when I, when I think the number one issue is, is sucrose, uh, the sweet white stuff, half fructose, half glucose. And I say that because, you know, there are societies that have had good metabolic health that have eaten a ton of glucose, you know, maybe not refined glucose. So maybe it's the refined carbs and sugar, but, you know, certainly in Asian societies that were doing very well on uh, unrefined
0: carbs. You're talking about like rice, you know, like yeah. because, you know, remember here, like, you know, some of these things are, are taboo, you know, because again... They know that it affects what's called the glycemic index, your body's you yeah. know, response. Yeah. You know, you know, but people try to refine what people understand about that is called the glycemic load, because sometimes yeah. a fruit with fiber and water won't necessarily make your glycemic index go up very quickly. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, but also you know the unrefined rice and what you know they may have been eating it, and, you know, rice that never were eating white rice for example. But but the real story I think, and, and this is. In a lot of ways I'm, I'm parodying Gary Taubes here, you know, yes. Mm-hmm. He influenced me a lot, but that you know he uses the expression that sugar is always at the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are societies that have eaten carbs, they've eaten fruits in, in various forms, but we pretty much have no society that's eaten sugar, refined sugar in large amounts, that has not developed these metabolic conditions. And we see it every time, you know, they start eating a lot of sugar and white flour comes in. And then, you know, in a matter of years or decades, they start having all the same problems uh, that everybody else has. Um, And, you know, in the 19th century, they had these remote populations that weren't eating this way. And then, you know, some of these doctors would stay with them for decades. And then all these problems would arise. Uh, You see it remarkably in, you know, these populations of Yemenites that came to Israel, you know, one generation after the next, they become healthy. And 30 years later, living in Israel, they develop all these metabolic problems. And it's always sugar is always at the scene of the crime so why sugar and it seems to be that fructose first and foremost that um glucose alone isn't good for you know it will spike your blood sugar but fructose has unique metabolic properties that uh basically allow allow it to uh generate you know fat stores you know the liver quickly will can turn some of it into fat as the liver and starts to accumulate more fat it'll you know, start find, looking for a place to send it, send it to the adipose tissue, send it. Ultimately, it'll end up in the muscles and it starts causing this process of of insulin resistance. Like it's, you know, the, the mechanism, you know, Gerald Schulman, who I was just talking about studies, is, you know, the mechanisms of, of what actually causes it to happen are debated, but uh, this extra fat, this internal fat around our internal organ seems to be the very key fundamental step once we have that cell- you have all this glucose in your system and the cell doesn't have a way to get it out of the blood that it's the cells aren't responding to the insulin and the pancreas responds to that by producing even more insulin. And and then you have the condition we talked about, hyperinsulinemia. and, And I think that's a very serious risk factor for cancer.
0: Yeah. You know what I find fascinating it was, again, today I was looking at, I like to read the New York Times every day, and I, I read the obituaries, not for morbid reason, because I think they're amazing biographies of yeah, people's no. lives. Yeah, I think. And one of the things that always seems to strike me, because even today in the New York Times, there was a uh, an obituary on someone who was a Holocaust survivor, and he lived into his 90s. And I, it always strikes me, like, here's somebody who's survived one of the most horrible things you could imagine in life. Yet I do frequently see the people that survived the Holocaust, the concentration camps, et cetera, a lot of them went on to live very long lives. And I, I, I find it fascinating because I just always wonder, was it the food restriction during those years and maybe later on that uh, gave them longevity? I mean, that was the best, you know, revenge against Hitler, I think, living the, a long, good yeah. quality life. Yeah. But what would you say, again, I don't think you're not here to give medical advice, but some of your takeaways about cancer and diet, if you had to summarize a few things that, you know, people should think about.
1: Yeah. You know, what I, I say is, you know, there, there are no guarantees with cancer you know, diet isn't going to guarantee you. And certainly you have cancer. It's not going to cure it. Although there is some really exciting research going on with diet as an adjuvant therapy, which it's too soon to say, but it's it's exciting to see what's going on. Uh, But you know, to me, the takeaway advice is if you're insulin resistant, as much, most of us are, try to correct that to, you know, be, I think it's analogous to quitting smoking. It's like it's a serious risk factor for cancer. I think the evidence is quite strong. So, how do you correct that to give yourself better odds? I mean, step one is, I would say step one is don't drink any sugar. I think, you know, because drinking yeah. sugar, you know, seems to, to cause insulin resistance the fastest. Uh, step two would be just, you know, eliminating as much sugar as you can, you know, the next step would be focusing on the refined carbs, you know, it it, it may be true that if you never ate any sugar, you could eat a lot of carbs and be okay. But what's clear is that once you already have the insulin resistance, cutting the sugar alone isn't gonna be enough, you got to get the refined carbs out of your diet. And some people, you know, everybody has different sensitivities, some people need to Restrict all carbs. Some people just need. Mm,
0: interesting. Some,
1: some people go all the way to carnivore. You know, it's, there's a huge range.
0: Yeah, there is a huge range. And obviously, I've had a lot of people on the podcast, experts who have uh, talked to every one of them is convinced their method is right. From Walter Longo to Barry Sears, um, I've had the whole range. Dean Ornish, you name it, and you know, and everyone after I get off the podcast, I'm convinced. Oh, they're right. <laughs> they're all very yeah, good so at.
1: What, it. what I would say is, in a way, they they all are right, but what they almost always have in common some degree of carbohydrate restriction. You know?
0: Yeah, except in Ornish, but I mean, to some but, degree, uh, but.
1: Yeah, but think about, I mean, sorry, it's the issue that I, I debate and think about, but the yeah. diet, yeah, it's carbohydrates, but they're not refined carbohydrates. No,
0: he does. He says that the a complex, you're right. And yeah. I, I think the other really big thing, honestly, too, is movement. Unfortunately, in our society now, we're we're all in front of computers more than ever. Uh, sitting. I found myself, I just got a standing desk because I'm like, I, I realize people I think that are standing here do better than sitting all day long. Anyway, Sam, this has been a wonderful conversation. Your book, Ravenous, I highly recommend to all of our listeners, you know, the Otto Warburg story, you, you know, the Nazis and the search for the cancer diet connection. Um, where can our listeners find out more about your writing and what you're up to?
1: Uh, I have a website, samapple.com. <laughs> I'm not sure how much uh, it will inform people, but I, I'm, I'm active on, on Twitter at uh, Sam underscore Apple one. So um,
0: are you would... working on another book or are you going to take a break for a little while? Uh, how long did this take? Did it take a couple of years uh, to write?
1: It uh, took the first year I was working on a magazine. article, I published that and then I got the book deal and took five more years after that. Wow. So it was, it was wow. years. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of taking a break, focusing on on teaching mostly, but, you know, doing little projects here and there.
0: Okay. Again, thank you so much. Uh, I hope all our listeners enjoyed this. If you have, please leave a review on my Instagram site, the smartest doctor in the room, and hopefully we'll bring you some more terrific guests like today's. Take care.